All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 498. Jason will join us later, I believe. Uh, I am also joined by Sean Michael. Uh, we met, he'd been following along, and we're going to do a talk about the ages. Um, anyhow, welcome, Sean Michael. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's uh, Jean Michel, but yes, thank you for having me. I've been a listener of the show for quite some time, and yet yeah, we met back in New York in 2019, and you graciously allowed me to use uh, some of your astronomical footage in uh, a film that I did, and uh, it was very, uh, uh, very nice of you to allow me to use that. But yes, thank you for for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, cool. And my apologies, Jean Michel, stupid American. No problem. So I'm hoping you have a different point of view. I'm looking for people with other points of view. Dylan Sicoccio has added quite a bit with his points of view. And I'll tell you where I've landed with regard to the ages. I started getting interested in the yugas and there was a problem. There was a longstanding version of the yugas, which claimed that we still or that we are in the dark age or the Kali Yuga, basically the iron age, and that we have 400,000 more years to go. But there was a man named Yukteswar. Now, four members of his lineage made it to the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, so I knew it was important. What I didn't know, was it some kind of a psychological operation? Was it social engineering? Or was it a wink and a nod that they knew something important and nobody had a clue? And that's what I currently accept is true. Yukteswar took it apart, explains it in 12 pages in a book that's credited to him, the one book. Sri Yukteswar, I think it's Geary. Now, what he said is we left the ascending dark age because it's split into the descending half and the ascending half in 1700. There's a 200 year transfer period where we gradually leave the dark age behind and we go into the next, which is called the Dwarpa Yuga. As of 1900, we are firmly in the Dwarpa Yuga. The difference being that the last dark age could have been called the material age. The age we're in now, according to them, is called the energy age, of course, that energy being electricity. Now, within this, they also line it up with what they think is proper about the way we do it over here in the West with the Zodiac. And I accept what they're laying down, and it's not far off what Dylan Sicoccio is laying down. We got a few hundred years before we enter the age of Aquarius. The moment we leave the Dwarpa Yuga, we will also see the end of the so-called age of Aquarius. So there's a brief outline of where I'm currently at. So I'll throw it over to you. Where are you at? Well, I'm at where that we shouldn't be even using the age of Aquarius, age of Pisces, etc. I am. I used to use the. So I, I'm an astrologer, and I used to use the sidereal zodiac. And after experimenting with it, and after listening to what other people have suggested that we that what the question is what is the zodiac and that is for me a measurement of the sun's movement through the sky over the course of the year it's not based on the constellations but that doesn't mean that the constellations aren't important or the the backdrop of the sky and that we see that moving year by year we have the procession of the equinoxes that's an actual phenomenon and but we counting the age from say the age of Pisces into age of Aquarius, I believe it's a misnomer because, like I said, 
the points in the sky that the sun changes directions, the two solstice points, and then the, the equal day and night, those aren't moving year to year. So it comes down to a definition of how do we sit, what do we say the zodiac is? What do we say the, the 12 sign zodiac is? And for me, it's a measurement of the spatial arrangement of the sun's motion through the year. Which is only known by what's behind it, just so people know. The constellations supposedly behind the sun that we call the zodiac are the only way we would really have to gauge that. Well, if you just looked at where the sun moves throughout the year, if you can mark it in the sky at a certain point, at a certain uh, angle in the sky, and then at another point in the year, you can only, you could just use the sun as a position, and then you can divide that 360 degree circle into divisions. But the stars themselves, the markers, this, when we say sidereal, it just means using the stars to mark things. That is pertaining to the moon's movement through the sky. So the moon spends one day in a certain section of the sky, and that completes a cycle of 28 days on average. And that, according to the most ancient traditions of, of not just the Vedic, but the Babylonian and the Persian and um, the Chaldean astrologers that were marking that sidereally. So we're marking that using the stars as certain areas in space that, uh, that have certain energetic qualities to them. But the suns, so we're making, basically we have two zodiacs. We've got the moons, which is marked by the stars, and the sun, which is marked by the solstices and equinoxes. So when we bring that into where is the sun on the vernal equinox, it's always in the same point. It's always in the same point in the sky. And we're not using the backdrop, we're not using the stars to mark that. So it's basically a definition of what is the sun's, uh, the, what is the zodiac, which is the difference that I have. We're not using the stars to mark that. So gradually as the vernal equinox is changing by the stars, sidereally changing, a problem when it comes to astrology is that in each zodiac sign, there's called a modality, a fixed, movable, and dual quality to it. And they go in order. So Aries being a movable sign, Taurus being a fixed sign, Gemini, a dual sign, etc., and they and they follow that order. So if we're count, if we're saying that the sign of Aries, a movable sign, begins in mid-April, we're saying that the movable quality is beginning in mid-April, when in fact the movable quality was begun when the sun's position hit that equate when the sun's ecliptic and the equator intersected on March. March 20th. That vernal equinox is the actual beginning of the movement forward. So it's the sun's position that is creating the energy of what we call a zodiac sign. So let's let's define that for a second. I noticed that you picked March 20. Are you aware of the work that we've done that demonstrates the equinox? If we look, there's a you're pointing out the similar problems with the definitions of the zodiac and all the things. I'm with you. Using using the idea of the age of Pisces, and of course, it's almost unusable. It's been so kind of messed up. But what we did determine, and this is based on the idea from what I've read in the oldest text, that what an equinox is, is a day of equal night and equal day. Now, I should state to you, since we got kicked off the local observatory that we were using in Washington, D.C., I think it's the Naval Observatory, I don't remember, 
They've come up with a new term. So now what they say, because we found them out, they announced that every year the equinox for spring is on March 20 or March 21. It's not true. Your geography Mm -hmm. is what's true. So where I am, it's almost always on the 17th, which is perfect. That's St. Patrick. That's what St. Patrick is. He is person personifying the equinox. But Jason, who's further south, he's a day earlier. Someone further north would be a day later. So I think it's important for us to put this on the table because while I agree with you that the equinoxes and solstices are fixed and we're setting aside the procession of the equinox, I just want to get that out there so people who have followed along to demonstrate this. So I'll just ask you, do you agree that the proper definition for an equinox is equal night and day to the second? Exactly. That That's the exact definition of an equinox. Right. It's when... And like you said, it changes on your latitude on earth. It changes where you're living. And so, yeah, it's a very uh, convoluted way. It's a very area specific definition. And when I say March 20th, I'm saying that it's just a marker date, but it would be very interesting if, if we're actually, if we would move the Zodiac, because then we have the Gregorian calendars, but then we have the the various calendars that we're using or the Julian calendar, which then is not, it's not a clean setup. And that also brings into the idea of the changing movement of the, the speeds of the sun and the moon. We're told that they don't move at a constant rate. When you take a circle, it's 360 degrees, but why do we have 365.25 days? You know, there's, right. there's something, there's something that's not clicking and we're told that it's there it's the exact we're we're so perfectly exact now but it's not clean what you're pointing out is in a perfect world the circle is 360 everybody knows it but we're talking about 365 so something's not jiving i will further add that since we defined that geography determines your equinox and an equinox is perfect equal night and day to the second they i, I just want to add mm-hmm. this in they've made up a new term now called equilux so what they now do is on the news, they come on every year and they say, oh, the spring equinox is on the 20th or the 21st usually. And they say, but you might be interested to know that five days before or four days before there's this thing called Equilux. You see what they're mm-hmm. doing there? And yeah. for them to take the effort to obfuscate and confuse what is true adds more weight to what you're getting into here. There's a reason that they're hiding this and messing it up. Right. And... I agree. And another interesting thing is that the phrase, the age of Aquarius, it's not, it's a new phrase. It ha- it's never been used to mark time, not just age of Aquarius, but the Zodiac signs have never been used to mark time in the past, the past civilizations, they were using the stars to mark time. And it's never been said the age of uh, people say the, I mean, the Babylonians are saying uh, they had the, the Royal bull or they were, they mark constellations in the sky to help them mark time. But when we're talking about this, what we call the 12 sign Zodiac, that is a new way of saying that that's a new way of calculating, say we're in this energy now, because at the end of the day, it's saying, Oh, this is the energy of the time. When I'm saying that it's the original division or the way to divide this, it's dividing the sun's movement. It's not dividing the stars. Dividing the stars up is a different way 
to measure time. It's a different way to, and that was done using the moon's motion through the through the sky. So once a month, of course, once it was called yeah. a month. I mean, making the point that you're making, but I, I would I would further point out. That and this is where people so people get upset. This is why I invented the word sky clock to try to get astrologers and astronomers and people with diverse views to come together. Let's talk about this. Things have been shuffled. This is important that we get back. It's the whole reason I'm having you on right now. But would you agree? Like when I go out with my telescope and let's say I look next to the Pleiades and I'm looking in the sign of Taurus and I see the bullseye, big reddish orange star called Aldebaran. Now, all through the old writings I can find, that is a malefic idea to those people, partially because of the color, partially because of things they saw in the world whenever they saw that star and wherever they thought it was important on the rise or at apex, however they did it. Do you agree that the stars do have an energy, but nowhere near what the sun has? Right. That's that's a conclusion I've come to as well, is that there's something to the stars and they have a definable, but I would say a subtle energetic influence. Whereas the sun's signs have a much more concrete manifestation in our life because the sun's pattern in the sky is defining more of an energetic has creates more of an energetic influence as well as the moon. So let me try to define what you just said in a way that I have currently used as my operating I view, I now currently view the sun as a lens. So yeah, it's obvious. If a star is red, red is a vibration. If it's got light, that's energy. If it's radiating, if it's blink, whatever, we can see it. It's an energy. So that, like you said, it's a subtle energy source. Now, probably the brighter ones are a little less subtle than the super dim ones. Who knows? But the sun, in the same way, the sun gives us white light and we can sit down here and take a prism and break it into basically, usually it's called seven bands of light. That's exactly, in my view, what's going on with the energies in the star fields. They're lensing into us via the sun. That's my take. And I figured I'd put it on the table because what you just said doesn't seem far off that. It could be through um, the, through the sun. Yes. And also the other wandering stars, the other planets as well, where they, they have a unique they're unique and they're defined as having certain motions, each of the planets that we, we call planets. And they as well work, can work like prisms where wherever, whatever star energetic fields they're in front of, they're magnifying that energy into the, the material realm. So, right. And the moon is also doing that too. And so that's why we get astrology. That's how that works is that why is the sun in this the sun, if we're dividing up the sun's path, the sun being the number one planet, the, uh, the most vital, the king of the zodiac, if we're dividing his path up, when a planet is in within that region, it's going to have a certain energetic effect. Plus, the really the, the mis- most mysterious part of astrology now is what we call the moon's lunar mansions, which are those 27 or 28 divisions of the sky with subtle energies. And they've almost been lost in the past thousand years or so, uh, the understanding of them. And they've been preserved in the Vedic tradition, but the oldest books from India are referencing them primarily. 
And they're used for certain holy days. They're used for uh, what's called electional astrology or mahurta when you are opportune times to do or not do certain things. And the understanding of what these clusters of stars are doing and what they even are has been dissipated. And that is saying that what you're saying, this region of, of star energy, the subtleties of them have been, have kind of been lost. And what, what are they actually? And they're more difficult to define and difficult to understand because they're so subtle and they have, you have to really key into what they are in order to come to a clearer understanding of them. Whereas the sun is a far more concrete, the sun's division is far more concrete and direct. Um, and that's why the astrology that is used today is primarily using the sun's, uh, the sun's zodiac instead of the, the subtlety of the moon's zodiac, which is based on the stars. So they, um, it's, a, it's a lost tradition in a certain sense, but now if it's absolutely true that we're, um, come, we're rising up in the cycle of ages through the ascending cycle into Dwarpara, however far we are, the understanding of them, of the moon's lunar mansions, the, subtle, the subtlest energies brought to us through stars themselves, these prisms, the knowledge of them is growing and the knowledge and the understanding that we need to be using them is growing and being recollected and reassessed and rethought about and meditated upon. So, and that's been facilitated by the availability to connect with so many people uh, through the, through the internet and just being able to dig up so many sources. But basically it's been lost through, uh, through history, the understanding of these subtler energies. So what's interesting is there's a few things that I'm going to touch on here. One of them is kind of a mind blower, and I've been thinking about it a lot. I want to get your reaction. So I accept what Yukteswar has put forward. Whether it gets modified, who knows? I accept that we are currently entering the age of energy. I accept that in this age, it is likely the one big change will become that we become aware of the five subtle energies of electricity, which are represented in our vision our smell, our, our five, five of our senses are proofs that the subtle, subtle electrical, electrical forces do different things. What's interesting to me is this. So first of all, Yekteswar marked it by, get this, the fall equinox. The moment I read that, he had me. The moment he began to talk about our zodiac and he twinned it. So if you go straight across from Pisces, what is that, Virgo? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Right. So he starts using that idea. And I began to realize how it had been shuffled around. And by the way, you're right. Aquarius, age of Aquarius was put forward by the social engineers in the early sixties ish with the new age movement, the Aquarian, the new Aquarian age, very well outlined in the committee of 300 by Coleman. But here's a thing for you to think about. As I began to look at the luminaries, which we call planets, and I'm with you. Each one of those has a definite energy, and I am with you. The sun lenses those energies into us, and I think that's where astrology has a lot of things going on that are right and that they can zero in on. Unfortunately, we don't have 5,000 years of records that we can trust, but think about this. I started looking at Venus and Mercury and asking questions. From our point of view, Venus is the only so-called planet that phases like the moon. Uh, when you're looking at it through a telescope for the first time, you're all, what the hell, man? That looks like a miniature moon. Everybody knows it's like the brightest thing in the sky there is. Uh, maybe a full moon beats it. I don't know, but it's like the brightest thing beyond Sirius. How about this idea? Would we better describe Venus and Mercury as moons of the sun? 
they have no moons of their own. Every every other planet has moons. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that's a good that's a good idea from the basis that the Mercury and Venus don't. When you're looking at the sky, they don't stray. I think it's farther than forty degrees from the right. sun. So, so, so they're basically around it. Yeah. So basically, so people know. Venus can be the morning star or the evening star. It's the brightest damn. It's like a diamond in the sky, an electric diamond. It is so bright, but it never gets that far off the horizon. Venus gets much higher than Mercury. Mercury never really gets that high off the horizon, which is what Jean-Michel is telling you, just so you observationally can get it in your mind. These two so-called planets, which I think might be better described as moons of the sun, they never get that far off the horizon, though Venus does get a little ways up. Yeah, and when you're when you're looking at, uh, if you look, always I all the astrology that I use besides looking at the maps, the charts, you take it always from the perspective on Earth. And what do you look at when you look from your position? Look at the sky and see how they're moving. And there's software to help you visualize it better. But you're seeing the sun in its path on the ecliptic, and you look if you could speed up time and you could see how they're moving. They're they're revolving around the sun in a certain sense. So it makes, so a heliocentric person would say, yeah, exactly. They're, they're revolving around the sun, but to call them moons of the sun would be a different term of it, but you can see how you can observe something in the sky and make an interpretation. Oh yeah. Everything's revolving around the sun, but you take the outer planets, Mars, in a sense, they're all revolving around the sun, but in in another sense, they're not, they have their own motions, but these two planets, Mercury and Venus, since they stay so close to the sun, they relate to the sun in a very, in a close way. For the, the, uh, the concept of what Mercury is, it's the prince that inherits the kingdom. So it's a force in our consciousness that is about learning and cognizing all of the things that we need to do to eventually become a leader. So each planet is a force that we experience consciously and each one has a certain way to, that interacts with our, with our consciousness. And then Venus is known as the diplomat where it's a, how a king uses a diplomat to send out and send out into the world and create exchanges with others. So it's a force in our consciousness that is uh, creating, that is uh, making deals or that's uh, finding an equal exchange between people, evaluating choices. And so those are two, you can see how they work directly under, say, the king of the zodiac, the sun. But it's an, it's an interesting idea, you could say, that uh, they're moons of the sun. Um, I think that I kind of treat it like that all of the planets are members of a kingdom. It's a metaphor that's used in Vedic astrology where you have the prince, Mercury, you have the diplomat or the the, uh, the uh, minister, could be Venus, the problem solver or the warrior that goes out and solves problems, Mars, Jupiter, the, the sage or the wise guru of the king, uh, Saturn, which is the common worker. So they're all working, uh, and I forgot the moon, the moon is uh, the queen, but they, they're all working for a com- under a common, under, in a kingdom, so to say. But that kingdom is our consciousness. And so all of these planets are creating a, uh, a conscious reality that we're all have a bit different from another person. 
So they're all working in unison together. And to, it's hard to say if, because I think they, they have unique expressions. And so when doing astrology, I can look at what Mercury is doing in the chart and I can describe how a person can have say problems in this area of their life, because that's Mercury's consciousness and Mercury's consciousness is pure. It's a divine being, in my opinion. It's a, it's a divine entity, like how the, uh, like a, like a perfect archetype. But when it's moving through the sky, it's interacting with different energies throughout our our realm. So it's having different reactions to where its position is. And conscious. Yeah, it's conscious, and that consciousness is what we're, we're like living in a, a field of energy at all times. And that consciousness current in the sky is interacting with our energetic body. And so the first breath we take, that's the first imprint of the of the current consciousness of the realm at the moment. And we, that sticks with us. And then the con the current consciousness of the moment, every passing moment is affecting that initial imprint. So that would be the idea. When you first enter the realm, you get an imprint and then the conscious forces moving around us are always interacting with that initial imprint. So to me, they're all working together for different purposes. They have different agendas, you could say, because they have unique expressions. And I think, I think it's totally possible that depending on the age, depending on the, the time and history about what's needed for human consciousness, that certain planets can get phased out or phased in. The idea that another planet could come in and that new planet is then changing all of the conscious consciousness of the realm. Which is promised. What you just said is supposedly going to happen as our consciousness rises. Then we can detect those other bodies. Yeah, and the outer three planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, are there. the idea is that they're working more on a subconscious level, as well as the nodes of the moon, uh, Rahu and Ketu, or the north node and the south node. Those are working more on unconscious levels or subconscious levels. So we don't feel them as directly as we feel the, the nearer planets the, and uh, the, the faster moving planets, you could say. And so, but I, I really think that, I mean, I've heard that the Mayans have had multiple moons and how could that be? How could there be different objects? What does that mean? There's another moon in this. It's a different moon than it used to be. It's the fourth one. What does that mean? And so what I think that means is that depending on what's needed during the current situation in the world, the current yuga or the current energetic needs for consciousness to grow different beings to come in and have different responsibilities and they have different effects on our consciousness and they all work in unison. So the other idea is that we're going to have a new planet hit earth. I, I can't remember. Uh, what's it called? Uh, planet X. What do they call planet it? Planet X. Yeah. Nibiru. Nibiru. I think they call yeah. it Nibiru. Yeah. I think yeah. that's lifted they, from. Yeah. So yeah. However, like the, whatever that's going to act like a comet, but I think the idea is, is that there could be another planet that comes in, doesn't hit earth, but it comes in and then it has a unique energetic effect on everything else. So at the beginning, it would be shocking because then all of a sudden there's a new element to our consciousness. Because if you took a planet out, we wouldn't have that energy anymore. We wouldn't have that prism affecting us. But if you added a whole new one, that would add a new dimension to consciousness. So uh, having discovered, so to say, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, were they, were they added in? Where did they come from? Who, how did they find them? They weren't seen before. They're not really 
are, are they mentioned in the ancient text? That's a good question. I would have to see if, uh, and the Vedic, Vedic astrology doesn't have them. The oldest Vedic texts that we get the tradition of, uh, of Vedic astrology used today, they aren't mentioned at all. Uh, and so they're, they were supposedly receiving information directly from cosmic sources because astrology wasn't made from trial and error. You can't develop a system as subtle and as, as beautiful and scientific through just, well, let's try this and let's try this. The, the idea, the tradition is that divine beings transmitted the information to people on earth and that information was recorded. And so and then observed and then observation then observed. was employed. Right. Exactly. And then practiced. So if they were being transmitted information, why weren't they being transmitted information by moving objects, uh, wandering stars that were there? What about those other ones? What about Uranus, Neptune, Pluto? You know, why, why would those be forgotten? And the, or uh, why would those be not mentioned? And the, the book is called Surya Siddhanta. And it was a sage who, asked for information. And so the son incarnated as a person and, tra- and gave the information to this person who wrote it down. So that's the story of Surya Siddhanta, one of the uh, very important Vedic astrology texts. And in that book, actually, it's, a tr- it's describing a tropical zodiac as well. And it's really controversial. And it's not something that, I mean, there's so many opinions. And what I've been trying to do is test all the definitions. But supposedly in Surya Siddhanta, it's giving us four, it's giving us the solstices and equinoxes beginning with Aries and a division of 12. And it's never saying that that depends on stars. It said it begins in Aries and ends in Pisces and it's based on a tropical understanding. So the confusion of the sidereal and tropical, it's kind of never ending, but value in both. Can we get on the record that there's value in both areas? Yeah, there is. And even sidereal, I mean, sidereal astrologers can make predictions and they can, they can be right because when you're, making predictions and you're doing astrology, you're, you're working as say a tarot reader would work. You're saying information to a person or you're transmitting information that what needs to come out will come out. I'm trying to be as scientific as possible about it. But the, what I would say is that there's validity in sidereal because the stars have energy, not because of the, that I agree with the division of how it's divided because more and more that it's we're going to be entering a different um and so again the the sidereal is created if it's correct in the darkest point of the kali yuga from say the 1000 bc to 0 ad to 500 ad so to say that's when the confusion actually happened that's when it can be shown that marking the 12 sign zodiac by stars was first cre- first introduced uh, into calculations in um, in Indian astrology so if we're going to be if we talk about the yugas and we're talking about the Kali Yuga information being lost well we have this debate starting to happen at that time and uh, so but again there is value in both I agree I I don't I don't think that uh, you're just not correct as an astrologer if you use it uh, because you can actually create that energy in the world. If if you've got a whole continent of Indian astrologers saying that this is what's happening, you're creating a consciousness of it and then it can manifest. And so um, it's, it can work in that way as well. But 
I think the big thing for me with, with the two things you're pointing out is we need to come together. A sidereal person needs to get together with a tropical person and we need to talk and we need to try to deduce what benefits are in this person's thoughts and, uh, and what in that and try to incorporate kind of like what you and I are doing now. Your views are not exactly the same as mine, but I can already tell that you and I have come to certain conclusions. And before we go further, I want to go back. I made notes as you were going. I want to go just address a couple of the things you said. So let's back up for a second to Venus and Mercury. You know, the idea that maybe they would be better described as moons. They have no moons of their own. They're spinning around the sun. Venus phases, just like the moon we see, you know, there's phases of Venus from our point of view. And then you went on to call it the prince, which is interesting, but the little things you can learn like Mercury, the 88 degree period, Mercury, the messenger, there's 88 keys on a piano. You start to see all these correspondences and it's exactly what you said. These are providing an energy into our life. And I wanted to offer this example. Like you said, if we lost a luminary, we'd lose that portion, but let's, let's shape it like this. We have a rainbow and we're going to lose one facet. Someone pulls blue out of the rainbow. Now we don't have blue in our world anymore. Maybe a new color comes in we've never heard of. Um, and that would be the, you know, that's, that's kind of how sweeping the energy of what we're talking about. Now, the other thing I can point out is you were, you were saying they have their own motions. Well, Venus is known to make a pentagram, right? The star shape. Um, and everyone down here thinks it's evil. It's not evil. It's, it's a motion. It's often associated with the human form, but we know from experience now that the sacred geometry has energies. So even their so-called orbits can be shown to be creating energies. Now, when you started to define each luminary and you went out to Mars or Saturn, I want to give you the names in one of the versions I've heard. So in one of the versions I've heard, they take the time to say each little band that NASA would call an orbit is actually a spiritual hierarchy. So the first example is from Earth to the moon would be called the realm of angels. Beyond that, the moon to Venus would be archangels. Beyond that, from Venus to, to Mercury, a thing called archi. And then here's a big one for you. From Mercury to the sun, this is the powers of the sun. Now, if I go out from there, Mars is going to be the mites, like mighty. Then to, to Jupiter would be the dominions. Then to Saturn would be the ancient thrones. And then beyond that, things like cherubim and seraphim. But you see that breakdown, while people might read that and wonder, is this even matter? It's almost exactly what you just said, right? There's an energy there. There's a consciousness there. There's things that affect what goes on down here because of these realms. Yeah, you could, I think, th are you referencing, there are a lot of uh, medieval, I don't know if they're alchemical texts, but they, they have those rings and then the planets aren't aligned in the traditional order that were known. Is, are, is that what you're talking about? Cause I've yeah, seen a little bit, the Rosicrucians, I think were some of yeah. the people who held on to that idea. Steiner rebutted that idea. And oddly enough, in my mind, it relates to Tycho Brahe. And by the way, there is a difference, I think, between the Steiner layout of how the orbits, what NASA calls orbits uh, actually is. But I think they're almost the same as what Brahe said. And I see so many people doing different versions, but it does also prove 
that Mercury and Venus are unique. So it would almost be like there's two orbits, if we're going to use NASA terms so people can describe. So when you get out to the sun, everything from the moon, the earth, Venus and Mercury are all epicentering. And then in a larger sense, when you get out to Mars, the sun becomes the epicenter of all that. These are the ideas, but I'm kind of leading us off yeah. track. No, but yeah, I, I think it, it's interesting when you, they're kind of layers in a certain way. And so if they're, if you're talking about a planet kind of being a ruler of a certain layer of energy that stretches out, it could be interesting because we're in, uh, there are realms of existence. There are energetic realms. So if a being is in that area, it's expressing uh, a certain energy in one of those realms. So yeah, I, it's an interesting concept of, uh, of the layers, which I've seen. I've never understood exactly how those would be ordered. But if we're talking about, yeah, like layers or, or realms of, uh, yeah, energetic expression. Of influence and consciousness, I would say, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, those are the words that, yeah, I was trying to say. But so, so it would come down to, let's ask the simple question, in the Renaissance, whenever that may have been, they were drawing pictures of angels and calling them angels. Were they just making crap up or was there a reason? Right. And I think that's where we need to get back to people often say, well, you know, the Bible's a put up. Jesus never existed on a man as a man. And I think if you get to that finite trap, you're, you're missing, you're missing the big picture. You're starting to dismiss everything. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And so it's important to look at these ideas because people were truly trying to communicate something. And I suspect the reason they did it the way they did it was the people in the know knew and the commoner just thought, oh, there's a magical thing with wings up there. Yeah. And I'm constantly trying to correlate different traditions because I don't just do, I don't just study Indian traditions. You know, I, I'm always looking through uh, older pictures from the past, from medieval Europe and, and recently really getting into how the Babylonians were marking the sky because the mindset that I have is from what I know already, where, where can I, where can my mind grab to that? I've seen that before and it's creating, it's finding, it's trying to get down to the bottom of where are the similarities between each system and how does this relate to the other ones? Correspondence. Corresponding each of them. They have to have something in common. They don't have to, but to get at the truth of them, like for the example, the Mayans, they have a completely different way of calculate, calculating the sky. So there are so many different systems, but when we're talking about uh, exploring our realm and seeing how our realm is built, there's an order to it. And what is that order? And each system had a different take on it, but somehow they can all be, uh, they can all have a correspondence within each other. So it's a, it's a constant, uh, not a battle, but it's, it's a challenge because the the actual books are lost i don't speak or read latin and a lot of these books you can only find online in latin and it's tough and i've been i've tried i've actually gone to a rare book section of the new york library before and taken photos of each picture of i've taken a photo of each every single page of a book that was only printed i think 10 copies and you had to get permission to go look at it and people watching you the whole time but this kind of, what were they saying in the past and how can I relate that to what we know now, do you know? So 
it's a, it's a constant, uh, they all have something in common and trying to find what those things have in common has been the challenge, I think. You know, you're bringing up a point which I'm going to correspond to astrophotographers. The technology for astrophotography, who are actually looking at the sky clock, which is the foundation of what you and I are talking about. Why is it important? How do we get back to knowing what's what? How does it assist us? Um, it has been said that you're run by the stars until you comprehend, and then you run the stars is the idea when you get to a certain level of knowing. But the modern astrophotography, as I got my new solar telescope, it's huge, saved up. It's all modified and electronic and automated. And I went to go see how people are processing their sky clock photos, like nebulas and things. And it shocked me. They're doing things like masking every star, cutting it out of the image, doing all this modification to the image they've taken of the sky clock, putting the stars back in, removing some of them that interfere with the contrast of a nebula. And I just want to say this, that is a huge mistake. There's not that many people out there who have the skill level to film a nebula or a star cluster. And what you are doing could be absolutely important 100 years from now, but you've modified it. And so I'm going to begin to push the idea of if you choose to make a beautiful image instead of an exact replica of what's up there, you need to start labeling this was modified. Um, and this gets into what we're talking about. You're, you're talking about a book that might be 100, 200, 300 years old in Latin, and it stands as a record, and it's the same thing. We don't speak Latin, and even if we did, the dialect might fool us. But I want to bring up a thing since I brought up filming. and Shoot the Moon, I, at the very end, and Jason and I went back and forth about whether we added this in. In 2015, I shot another body next to the sun. To my satisfaction, I proved that it, it's not possibly any kind of a lens flare or something to do with the equipment. Another gentleman years later did the same thing with the same similar equipment, and he too proved that it's not a lens flare or anything like that. Whether it's a reflection, whether it's truly a body, whether it's all these things, but in the Vedic tradition, our sun, like almost every other star out there, has a binary. And I'm wondering if I shot the binary, and I think that's part of what the chemtrailing is about, uh, possibly. When the sun is going down, I think that if you pay attention, you will often see another body there. During an eclipse, I think you will see another body there. So is it possible that I shot the binary of our sun that is covered in Vedic ideas, but you brought up the nodes? Now, it is my contention that the moon does not block out the sun. I think I've proven it. Matter of fact, for myself, I have proven that it is not the moon blocking the sun during a solar eclipse. For me, it is the nodes, specifically Rahu, the head of the dragon. Do you know anything about that, uh, how the nodes might relate to a solar eclipse? Well, they're spoken of as invisible planets. And when you're talking, about, or invisible bodies, you can't see them. And so that's why they're affecting us in a, in a more subtle way under our subconscious. So they have a subconscious effect on our, and they're unstable bodies is what they're, they're unstable, they're invisible. And so they're, in, they're working on us on a quote unquote invisible level. So a subconscious level, but yes, the footage of shooting the second sun and 
I've seen videos online of people looking in the sky and seeing two suns at the same time. Yep. It's hard to know what though, how accurate those are like two actual suns, because what you shot was, it was through another filter. No, it was with a uh, hydrogen alpha. So I was shooting in the hydrogen alpha spectrum, which is usually what solar observers use. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about, I've, Ever since you shot it, I've been blown away, and I remember all of it. And uh, and so, when it comes to the Vedic idea that Yukteswar said the sun, so there's a few ideas. It's that the sun has a dual, and our sun is is I don't know uh, going on, uh, circling it or lining up with it. And the idea is that. It's, it's making a motion around it. Modern astronomy says that we're talking about the galactic center and that our solar system as a system is rotating around that center. It doesn't. Okay. So that's their idea. The, uh, so the question is, is the second sun you shot, is there some kind of rotational relationship between the two? And a, a question that I would have is when you shoot it, when you shot it once, is there a spatial difference between them? If you shoot it on one day, is it closer or farther than when you shoot it on another day? Is there a, are they getting closer? You know, are like little by little would be an observation. And it would be very slight, just so you know. Yeah. And, and I did shoot it into 2016. It was shot some years later. What I, I used as a rule of thumb was two sun widths to the left, and one or two sun widths up, but it was almost always in a similar place. And I think what you were trying to explain, according to Yekteswar, is that if that was the binary of our sun, then it's another sun, so to speak, and they are revolving around each other. Sometimes they get closer together, and then there are parts which mark where you are in the Kali Yuga, they are further apart. Additionally, both of those binaries are going around what they call the Brahma or the, the universe consciousness. Basically, we could think of it as God's consciousness or something like that, which you referred to as the galactic center. But I think uh, what I have read says they're not quite sure where that center might be at, at this point. Yeah, they, um, they, say, they say, okay, it's the Milky Way is where they say it is. And the astronomers um, or that big hair looks like a giant scar in the sky and the idea is that it's at the closest they can get and they say they receive information from there they say all types of things but there's others that say they can't see past certain things oh if this was if this thing wasn't in the way we'd be able to see behind it see something you know they kind of say that but the position of it is at around uh, sidereal five degrees sagittarius and that region of the sky is called Mula Nakshatra and uh, Nakshatra is a lunar mansion, 13 degrees, 20 minutes of space of the moon's zodiac. It's called Mula and Mula means root. And so that would be the root being uh, the source is the idea that comes from the Vedic text. So that area of the sky is called the source or the root of all consciousness. And that's the root of all truth. And that no untruths can exist there. So when you're using that energy astrologically, that's the energy you're talking about. Like you would talk about Libra or Virgo, whatever. So 
it's interesting you have a correspondence with what the Vedic old books are saying that Mula Root Nakshatra is where they're saying the galactic center is. And in the, the cycle of the ages, the yuga cycle, some astrologers, I think only one, and then I'm working with it as well, you mark that root as the beginning of the golden age, of the ascending golden age. And then that aligns with where we are where we are today. It, okay, so when you line up the yuga cycle, the descending and ascending circle, and then you line up the 27 nakshatras within it, the question is, where do you, how do you align them both? And then the other question is, what are we using as the marker? So the vernal equinox, is that what we use to mark the age? Because why don't we use the June solstice? Why don't we use the December solstice? They could all have a different marker. But it's interesting because today the June solstice is in just about Mula Nakshatra, right at that galactic center. So sidereally, the sun, so marked by the stars, on the June solstice is rising in that in that uh, in the Mula area of space in the sky. So it is quite um, it's quite, but there's so many different kind of variables you can put into how to, to mark uh, the eight, the yugas and where to, you know, it's a very convoluted and you kind of have to use some guesses at some points of make assumptions to certain things. Well, let me jump in. We're coming up on the top of the hour one. And I think what you were alluding to is what you want to call the galactic center or whatever, you know, we're using language that NASA has put forward because people have some idea of what that's supposed to mean. When we're entering the the ascending golden age eventually, then it will be the Satya Yuga. And when we get to the middle of the Satya Yuga, our binary system will be as close to that consciousness as we can be. The idea is that the ether, which is way up in the atmosphere right now, will be denser and denser and closer and closer to the ground. And when we get there, we will have a hundred, what they call a hundred percent virtue. Conversely, the idea was in the Dark Age, the Iron Age, or the Kali Yuga, whatever you want to call it, we had 25% virtue. Now we are headed into the Ascending Dwarpa Yuga. At some point, we will have 50% virtue is their claim. Now, Jean-Michael, please tell folks where they can find you. We're going to wrap up our one. We will put all your links in under the comments, but where can folks find you? You can find me at my website, jmvedic.com, jm vedic.com and yeah there's links to my youtube channel i just finished a video talking about how talking about these ideas that the age of aquarius uh is a faulty idea as well as playing with some ideas of how nakshatras can help us mark the ages and i show the uh, i show a few maps to get some ideas as well as dates uh, in that most recent video but i do astrology readings there as well over the internet and um do reports as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a constant uh, learning process, I would say. And so you can see my links at, at my website there. All right. We'll get the links in. Do you remember the name of Yuktashwar's book? I don't, I could look it up real quick. Do you know it? The Holy Science. There it is. The Holy Science. So people who are interested in what we're talking about, go get the Holy Science. It's not a long book. There are literally something like 12 pages near the beginning of the book where he redefines the yuga cycles because when we came to accept what was currently going on and what's currently posted on Wikipedia and Britannica uh, was done according to him when consciousness was too low to comprehend. Very interesting ideas. 
Jason, I noticed you joined us. Do you want to get anything in before we wrap? No, I didn't catch enough of it to really have anything to comment on. Yeah, I know you were slammed. So I'm going to wrap up and we're going to come back for hour two. So that has been hour one of episode 498 with Sean Michael. Whether we're right or wrong on what we're talking about, Sean Michael, I am totally down with the logic you're applying and the way you're going at it. Regardless of how close we are to the mark, there's value in the way you're going at it. From my point of view, you should meet Dylan Sicoccio. You guys might have a lot to yeah, talk about. That would be really interesting. Yeah. With that, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up hour one of 498. Uh, hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two hour, two hour plus episode. Members also get free access to the two hour film, Shoot the Moon, that Jason made about all my telescope work. It's got like 10 awards right now. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And we'll be back shortly for hour two. Cheers. Is the enemy. Is the enemy.
Auf Neu. 